0: It was interesting to hear Beth describe this time together as a kind of stress-free zone, but I'll bet she didn't feel like that last week when she was preaching. (laughs) (laughs) Because when you're the one doing the preaching, the stress-free zone comes after the service in your car on your way home. It's actually a privilege to be with you. Um, the, uh, you know, normally when uh, you preach in an Anglican setting, you are given texts, which is great because you, you wrestle with the text that you didn't pick for yourself, and it really causes you to dive deeply. I like that. Otherwise, I'm, I'm always going to pick the stuff I like, always navigate that. But this summer, we're doing something in reverse. Bishop Todd has developed this wonderful theme of following Jesus in an ordinary time. And uh, we get to select our own texts, the ones that we do feel that we want to wrestle with on our own. And uh, so I got to pick this portion of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Most of you would be familiar with this. It it tends to span Matthew 5, 6, and 7, those three great chapters in the Bible. Very famous text of Scripture. Um, Those great words we heard this morning that we call the, the Beatitudes, statements of blessing, have been treasured by people for centuries. Uh, countless books have been written on the Beatitudes alone, not to mention the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, historical figures like Gandhi or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Martin Luther King Jr. have found incredible inspiration in these words given to us by Jesus. And this text of scripture, like, like all texts within the Bible, can be approached in a variety of ways, through, through a different kinds of lenses, so to speak. And so the, the language scholar, for example, will take the, the ancient text, the Greek text, and, and, and translate it into words within the common vernacular for a particular people group. And the exegete, uh, the one who does the work of exegesis, will, will interpret the text, wrestling with words and phrases and, and dealing with issues like historical context and the intent of the author, uh, the composer, the musician has an interesting lens. The composer will will linger with the, the rhythms and will explore the sort of ebb and flow of the text and gather those words together into new melodies, while the worshiper listens to the text, letting the words speak that those words might actually reveal the heart of God. And so we have these different ways that we look at Scripture, these different lenses, so to speak. But what about the one who set about to do the work of the storyteller? You know, the one who put ink to parchment, Matthew in this case. What about the writer, the the artist who used words to paint these kinds of portraits? How did he approach the text? What what did he actually think that he was doing in this process? I, I like the way the whole Sermon on the Mount lays out. In the Beatitudes in particular, Matthew seems to be writing in such a way that he is creating a living picture in the minds of the readers. Now now some scholars would say, well, this is primarily a a teaching document of the early church, which it certainly was. Uh, It was designed to offer Jesus' words as a a kind of code of conduct, a spiritual code of conduct um, that would be even an, an expansion and a deepening of the intent of the Ten Commandments. People have written about how these great words ought to be applied to our lives, how one's spirituality and discipleship and even ethics might be enhanced by following these directives of Jesus. And and while it's true that these great words have, have a formative basis within our own spiritual lives, I often wonder whether Matthew was only writing a spiritual and behavioral prescription, or if he was also creating a literary portrait for us, seeking to impact our our imaginations as well as our expectations about following Jesus. I mean, after all, the people of the ancient world would have been accustomed to a a more storytelling tradition. They would have been okay with stories being told over shared meals and around campfires where where the the tales of the past would take on new life in the imaginations of those who were present. Well, this this great discourse that we call the Sermon on the Mount, while it does span chapters five, six, and seven in Matthew, actually begins at the very end of chapter four, which we heard this morning. And Matthew sets the stage for what is to come by placing Jesus in a particular location. It's an ordinary rural place there in Galilee. And we see Jesus doing the kinds of things that we would expect Jesus to be doing, that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Now, this is a visual image of Jesus in motion. He, He teaches, he proclaims the good news of God's kingdom. He puts his hands on broken and suffering people and makes them whole. Well, word gets out about that sort of stuff, right? So clearly, people began traveling. When they heard about what was going on, they went great distances to find Jesus. Now, Matthew paints this part of the picture with a very broad brush, and he indicates that there are crowds coming from all over ancient Palestine, from the north of Syria to the south of Jerusalem, and even clear over on the other side of the Jordan River, where the populations were made up of both Jews and Gentiles. So let your mind go for a moment. Can you sort of see these crowds? Can you imagine the makeup, the character, the nature of these crowds? It's a fascinating mix of people, I think. You have some who were sick, injured, paralyzed, some stumbling along while others are strapped down to pallets for fear that they might fall and injure themselves even further. There were those who who brought their loved ones to this place. People whose bodies might have been whole, but whose hearts were broken because of the suffering of the people they carried with them. And others were come because they were spiritually starved or maybe socially marginalized. And clearly there would have been just the curious, people who wanted to know what all the hubbub was about and see for themselves. There would probably even be agents of the state, Roman soldiers dispatched to make sure that as this crowd gathers, something terrible didn't happen. Now, at this point in the story, however, there would be a great deal of rejoicing in this mob of people because we're told that Jesus cured every single person who needed curing, all of them. There would be laughing, there would be tears of joy, there would be a sense of of amazement everywhere. Now, if we were watching this as a film I imagine the camera just sort of sweeping across the the very nature of this crowd and all the celebration taking place and the amazement of the moment. But then it would stop and the lens would focus in on Jesus. And as it focuses in on him, he kind of steps away. He moves away from the people because when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up in the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to speak and he taught them. Well, from the slope of that hill or that mountain or whatever it was, Jesus just sits. But now he's got a new vantage point from which he can see everything that's happening in that valley down below him. His view is, for the most part, unrestricted. And soon his followers, his disciples, they make that short climb to join him and they they gather around him, maybe just below him so that he can see them and speak down to them, kind of a natural pulpit that the good rabbi would utilize. But where is Jesus looking? You know, has, has he disengaged from the crowds in order to begin a, a kind of private and somewhat abstract teaching about personal spirituality? Or does Matthew want us to visualize Jesus still looking out among all those people, all those people who have been touched by the love and the mercy of God? Do, do Jesus' eyes fall on some who he remembers were suffering so deeply from the poverty of disease that they could barely find their next breath, that the very spirit of life was fading away from them when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And maybe he sees those who he remembers had just given up hope, those who had already prepared themselves for a lifetime of grief, but instead found new life at the touch of Jesus when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And maybe there were some gathered there who had been socially marginalized because of diseases that had been interpreted as evidence of God's disfavor in their lives. But at Jesus' touch, they were drawn right back into the center of human life because they were drawn back into the center of God's love. They were no longer the ones with nothing They were now the ones who would be the heirs of all that God had for them. And Jesus sees them. And he claims, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Well, he sees them all from his vantage point. Those wishing to break out from the bonds of religious legalism. The ones who, regardless of circumstances, had always remained devoted to God. Those who had mercy on others and helped them to find their way to Jesus. And even the soldiers who had come, ready to put down anything that smelled like rebellion. He captures them all in the same embrace of love. When he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So he sees them, he sees the crowds, the ones who are gathered down in that valley. They are real to him. And he not only has the authority to bless them, but he declares something that is true, that their lives have been touched by God and are therefore blessed. They're not blessed if they now go out and do something else. They are blessed because God has already done something for them. This is no abstract, theological, heartwarming type of blessing. It is a declaration of something that has actually happened in that time and place. It's not a a blessing that's just sort of made up of kind, warm, religious words. It's a blessing that's filled with wholeness and hope and love and the anticipation of a future that is characterized by God's unhindered presence. Now there's a final group that Jesus identifies out there in that valley with those crowds. And like the poor in spirit who first caught his eye, these people have lost much, and yet they are to gain more than they have ever imagined. And perhaps Jesus kind of takes a deep breath at this point because this observation will hit close to home when he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Now, maybe at this point, the disciples have kind of caught on to what's happening here, to caught on to what Jesus has been doing. It's true, they've been taught something, but this teaching is not isolated from the dramas of everyday human life. It's a teaching that emerges from the reality of pain and suffering that has just been relieved by the touch of God. There's nothing abstract about this teaching. It is tied to what God has already done right before their eyes. Now things change, and Jesus' eyes move from the distance of the crowds to the people sitting right before him, his disciples. He's looking now at his friends, and he starts with a very hard word, one that puts them in solidarity with the last group that Jesus has identified as blessed. And it would be a disturbing word. It would be one that would require the disciples to anticipate something that they would very likely want to avoid. And Jesus looks at each of them and he says, You are blessed, are you, when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, now, clearly, the disciples would be drawn in. It's getting kind of personal now. And because of the inevitability of persecution, Jesus has associated them with the ancient prophets of Israel, those who constantly called God's people to return to the intentions and desires of God. The prophets called the people back to their essential identity as the people of God through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. And right before their eyes, the disciples have seen this blessing poured out through Jesus on that diverse community of people that are now celebrating down there at the foot of the mountain. Now, in my mind, at this point, I see Jesus kind of hunkering down, maybe even smiling at his friends, because he's about to lay a mantle of vocation on them that will define rest of their lives and maybe they even lean forward in anticipation as they hear him say you are the salt of the earth but if salt has lost its taste how will its saltiness be restored it is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot and he goes on and he says you are the light of the world A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You see, in essence, Jesus has blessed his friends with something that is just as real as the healings that he brought to the crowds, It's a blessing of vocation, laying upon them the very destiny of the people of Israel, God's people, to season the earth with the flavor of God's love, to illuminate the world with the light of a contrast society that invites all people to live and flourish in the presence of God. See, Jesus sees things as they are. People ravaged by disease and oppression, Followers seeking to know God, and he responds as the faithful son and brings about the desires of his heavenly Father into that broken world. Now, as the writer of the book of Hebrews claims, the builder of all things is God. And what Jesus builds on that day is a foretaste of God's restorative intentions for the whole of creation. Now... I recognize that to engage scripture as a storyteller can be risky business. I get that. Uh, I've offered you a lens through which to gaze that requires a bit of speculation. It requires some imagination. I admit that. But isn't that the storyteller's job? To make people wonder and marvel at possibilities? But it's also the storyteller's job to draw the listeners into the story. And I think Matthew is great at that. So when we hear that Jesus saw the crowds, do we we see ourselves in that scene? Do we imagine bringing our sorrow, our anxiety, our grief, our suffering to Jesus? And do we marvel that He would have any interest in us in the first place? Are we, along with others, who consider themselves untouchable, astounded that Jesus loves us so much that He would actually place His hands on us that we might be made whole? When Jesus looks at His disciples and makes declarations about their lives and their destinies, do we understand that we, too, are among His friends? And as his friends, as his disciples, as his followers, we receive the mantle of vocation with which he has blessed us, to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world. Yes, we're important to Jesus because we're important to God. God loves us because he loves us. This is not a utilitarian, theoretical kind of love, but a love that comes from God's authentic goodness. And while it's true that we are called to join in with God in His work in the world, we are called to do that as friends of Jesus. And by virtue of belonging to Him, we're blessed. You know, I think it's significant that Jesus performs these miracles and speaks these brilliant words in that somewhat remote and rural setting out there near the Sea of Galilee. Now really, something like that should have happened down in the power center of Jerusalem, don't you think? You know where all the the, the both Jewish and Gentile leaders would be forced to stand up and take notice at all that was going on? But instead, the story takes place in the ordinariness of Jesus' home turf, the region where he grew up. It takes place in the lives of very ordinary people. The whole ordinariness of everyday life, captured by conversations and meals and parables and prayers, seemed to be Jesus' preferred context for ministry. Well, most of us are not power brokers. We're kind of just regular folks. The influence that we bring into the world is, is quite often limited to the ordinariness of our daily lives, and yet, That's the very place where we are called to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world. And Jesus goes before us into those ordinary places, but his spirit also resides within us as we go. And with that, we are able to embrace Jesus' call to rejoice and be glad. Amen.